God and Father, how we do praise and worship you today for your love, for your word. Lord, just for giving us this opportunity, open our minds that we will see you clearly and see the way we should be in our world today. Help us to be more like Daniel. Help us to be leaders and take a stand and be faithful and teach and encourage those around us to know you. And Lord, I just lift up Catherine to you now. Strengthen her and empower her for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Today we're going to take a quick tour through history, beginning at the beginning. We're going to take a time machine ride back to the beginning, and I do mean the very beginning, because the chaos that we see in today's world has a history, and it also has a prophesied end, and such things as luck, chance, Coincidence, spontaneous combustion have absolutely nothing to do with the entire process. You should take those words out of your vocabulary as a Christian. There is a first cause, and his name is Jehovah, Yahweh. He has pre-planned history, and through his word, he has pre-announced to those of us willing to read about it, he has pre-announced the final outcome. And you and I are living in the preparatory days of that final outcome. But we are not going to understand end times events if we do not understand what God is doing and why he is doing it, which is the reason we're going to do this quick review of history past from the very beginning. It came about sometime in eternity past that the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, determined to establish a kingdom over which he, God, could rule as sovereign king. You see, one is not technically a king without a kingdom and subjects to rule over. Now, you can call yourself a king, but if you don't have a kingdom and you have no subjects, you're really deceiving yourself, aren't you? So he decided to have a kingdom over which he could be king and have personal subjects. However, because he desired to have genuine fellowship and genuine worship and willingly obedient ser uh, service from his subjects, he created them in his likeness, which meant that they had personality. We have a God with a personality. And they had intellect, and they had emotion and will. He did not and had no desire to create robotic subjects who had no choice in the matter of reciprocating his love. Knowing every risk that would come with doing that, giving his subjects free will, nonetheless, he created two kinds of personal subjects. He created angels to serve and glorify him primarily in the heavenly realm of his universal kingdom, and he created humans to serve and glorify him in an earthly realm that he would create specifically for them. His creative work began with a vast host of angels. We know, don't know how many, but multitudes upon multitudes of heavenly angels, all created simultaneously. In other words, all at the same time. There is no angel being created today. They're, they were all created. In other words, they're all the same age, even though they're ageless, they're beyond time and age, you know, but they're all, they were all created at once. And being created for the heavenly realm of his kingdom, they are spirit beings. What does that mean? Well, they do not have physical bodies. They are spirit beings. 
And we have no way of knowing, really, how long God lived in a harmonious arrangement with the angelic hosts before, he, before Lucifer's fall um, and before he created earth and, or man. But what we do know is that the great test of any creature blessed with free will is his willing obedience to God, to God's will above his own will. And that test eventually came for one particular angel named Lucifer. His name means day star or shining one. He was the anointed cherub angel over God's throne to proclaim God's glory. Lucifer's test came from within himself when he allowed his admiration to shift from his creator to his own God-given beauty and wisdom. Pride lifted him to the point of such self-deceit that he dared to boast that he could be like El Elyon, the Most High God. He corrupted his wisdom by being enthralled with himself. He took the gifts of God and he desired to use them for his own selfish ends. And it was the entrance of sin into the universe. What brought sin into the universe? Pride. Somehow, as he would later do with Eve, Lucifer perverted truth. He is the father of lies. He perverted truth, and he successfully managed to persuade one-third of the angelic host to join him in his rebellion against God. Now, if you think about this, if Lucifer had truly been as God, he could have created his own great host of angels to serve him in his kingdom. And he could have created human beings to serve him. He could have created his own world, right? But that was impossible because a mere created being, which is what he was, has no such power. Only God can create something out of nothing, which is called ex nihilo. That is only in God's power. The best that Lucifer could do was to attempt to steal God's subjects with his deceitful lies. He is not and he never will be a replacement for God. He is nothing but a counterfeiter. With his rebellion against God, there came a change in his character. All the holiness and all the beauty that he had derived from his creator was lost and vile corruption replaced it. He now had a kingdom of his own. You can see this on your chart. Satan's counterfeit kingdom, counterfeit to God's eternal kingdom. He had a kingdom of his own, but it was a stolen kingdom. It was a counterfeit kingdom of darkness, not of light and truth, but of darkness and lies. He went from being Lucifer, the day star, the shining bright one, to Satan, which means adversary, because he is the number one adversary of God and Christ and the Holy Spirit and truth, and God's word. What is an adversary? It's an enemy. It's the number one enemy of God and of you and I as well. So even though all the angels were originally created in a holy or a sinless state, 
They were not locked into. They were not confirmed into their original state of sinlessness. It was actually with the rebellion of Lucifer that all the angels made a choice. It was their defining moment for all of them. Those who of their own volition chose to remain loyal to God became confirmed in sinlessness. They were created holy because they chose to remain loyal to God. They were locked into their holiness. Those who chose to join the rebellion against God with Lucifer were instantly and eternally confirmed or locked into their state of sinful rebellion. As the host of angels were all created at one point in time, simultaneously, so too they, their eternal decision was all made at one time. And it was at the time of Lucifer's rebellion. They did not and they will not ever repent of their sin against God. Never. They will never repent. They know who he is. They have no doubt who Christ is, the Holy One of God. They will not ever repent. Their defining moment came. They did not surrender, having full truth. You know, they did not surrender their eternal allegiance to God, and they are now locked into their depravity forever. They are not redeemable. You see your first homework question? It's going to get you thinking. Why are the fallen angels also known as demons or evil spirits. Why are they not redeemable? And when you get your notes, I'll get, spell all that out in detail, but I don't want you to think about that in the meantime, and I'm going to give you two hints. One has to do with the fact that they cannot die, and the second has to do with the fact that they do not reproduce. It's not, the angels are not a race like the human race. So Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Redeemer, could not be born into the angelic realm to become an angel god like he became a god-man. Right, so those are two hints, all right? But think about that. That's going to get your little brains going. Um, but read the notes. I'll get more into it. But they are not redeemable, ever. So I always say, I'm so glad I was born a human <laughs> instead of an angel. Because once they fell, that was it. We have a second chance, don't we? Well, why did the Lord God not immediately destroy Lucifer and all the fallen angels, the one-third of the uh, angelic host, and be done with them? You know, or why, why didn't he cast them right then and there into the lake of fire, which, by the way, he created for them? He did not create the lake of fire for man. He created it originally for Lucifer and all the fallen angels. Uh, why didn't, you know, if I had been God, I might have done that. I might have just thrown them in there once and for all and been done with it. But uh, while that is eventually his plan, that will happen one day. In the meantime, you see, he has been using them. Because what is he the expert at doing? Taking evil and using it to produce good, to turn it to good. He makes even the wrath of man to praise him, and he makes his enemies to serve him, it says in Scripture. The kingdom of darkness and lies and unrighteousness was formed but not by way of God's creation, but by way of voluntary forces led by his adversary. It became the polar opposite to God's kingdom of light and truth and righteousness. Well, at some point in time after Lucifer's fall in heaven, God began another creative work, an earthly realm for human subjects of his eternal kingdom. After preparing a perfect place for them, 
ideal, perfect. You know, the earth is just so many miles from the sun, you know, it just couldn't be any more conducive for human life than where we are situated. He made earth in six days, perfect environment, and then what did he do? He made a man and he made a woman and he endowed them with free will, regardless of how things had already worked out with the angelic spirit beings. You see, freedom of choice was essential if they were going to be made in his image. To reproduce his personality, particularly his attributes of love and holiness, he had to allow them to grow in the soil of moral freedom. True fellowship involves moral choice. Robotic, forced fellowship is not fellowship at all, really. A dictator like Nebuchadnezzar, who makes everybody bow before him, that's not true fellowship with his subjects, is it? That's forced fellowship. God's desire is to be related to us by love, not by coercion, not by force. The bond of love is infinitely stronger than the bond that is created by fear or by force. So he made Adam and Eve to be partners with him in his kingdom rule. Their initial test was that they could eat of any fruit, any tree in the garden, except for one, one. And it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right. It was not a trap. He was not setting a trap. It was a necessary test that gave them the choice as to whether or not they would be obedient and loyal to him, that they sought his will, above everything else, or would they surrender themselves to the enticing alternative that was presented by his adversary? And yes, God did permit Satan to enter into that garden. Now, if they had been faithful to God's word, and if they had not eaten of the forbidden fruit when enticed, then they would have been allowed to eat from the tree of life, and they would have been established as eternally righteous. You get it? They would have been locked into eternal righteousness and they would have lived, you know, forever in their bodies. However, first the woman who was deceived by the certain, uh, serpent and then the man who was not deceived but decided he did not want to be separated from the woman, they both disobeyed and the fall of the human race took place and here we are today. <laughs> all inheriting the Adamic sin nature. So to all outward appearances, it looked like the second fall into dis disobedience of God's created beings would utterly dash to pieces the extension of his kingdom through creatures with moral free will. If people who were to be given the responsibility over the earth for God could not be trusted with a single piece of fruit, then did it not prove that the gift of choice, free will, was just too risky? Was it not counterproductive to God's plan when sin had become a two-time victor? So the Lord faced two major problems. Of course, I'm just putting that in human terms because he never really faces the problem. He's got it all figured out from eternity past, right? But from our perspective, it looks like two problems. His sovereignty had been challenged by Lucifer's rebellion and the counterfeit kingdom that he established. 
that now contained one third of all the heavenly hosts and also planet Earth. He had usurped Earth. And now he had man, mankind, in his kingdom as well. So God's sovereignty had been challenged by Lucifer's rebellion, but his character had been challenged by man's rebellion because their disobedience was really the result of questioning his goodness and his love. Maybe he was keeping something from them that they could be like him and have knowledge of everything, good and evil. So you see, one challenged his sovereignty, one challenged his goodness, his character. So his kingdom looked to be in disarray and dominion over the earth by man had been usurped by the adversary. He is the prince of this world. Have you noticed? He is the prince. It still lies in the lap of the evil one. But rather than wipe the slate clean and start all over again, which again is probably what I would have done. <laughs> well, this was a boo-boo. Let's do this <laughs> repeat, you know, put it on instant replay. Um, but that would have not really solved the solution. That wouldn't have been the solution because eventually, you know what? The same thing would have happened eventually if any of us had been in the garden with free will. Eventually that would have happened. So instead of wiping the slate clean, starting all over again, the Lord got to the root of the problem. What is the root of the problem? Sin, sin. For there will always be sin wherever there is free will. So he addressed two problems, the first of which was how he would reclaim the usurped kingdom, and the second of which was how to provide redemption for humanity made in his image. And in the accomplishment of these goals, he would display his attributes of unconditional love and grace and mercy. Now, God has always possessed those attributes, but he had no way before to demonstrate them. So he was going to demonstrate them for the angels to observe and for mankind to observe by providing a way to redeem man. So in Genesis 3.15... Now, if you have never heard of the Proto-Evangelium, I told the women yesterday, you've got to go back there, Genesis 3.15, highlight it, circle it, underline it, star it, whatever you have to do. It is the most important announcement that God ever made. It is called the first gospel. That's what Proto-Evangelium means, first gospel. It is also known as the Adamic covenant, the Adamic covenant. In Genesis 3.15, the Lord God made the first announcement that a man born of the seed of a woman would come into the world in order to vanquish both sin, the root of the problem, and Satan, the adversary usurper. It is called the Proto-Evangelium. It is an unconditional promise by God to mankind. Adamic covenant and he sealed it as he sealed all of his covenants with man by blood he sealed it with blood what did he do he killed an innocent animal and used the animal skins to cover the nakedness of the sin of Adam and Eve his prophecy was this it's a prophetic announcement first gospel he said that following a long two-way enmity now they didn't know it was going to be long we know it's been long following a long two-way enmity there would be two crushings 
two bruisings. The woman's seed, and right away, right then and there, he was given a hint that this man who would come into the world, this savior, um, was going to have a miraculous conception because women do not have seed. The men have seed. So a man was going to be born of a woman without the seed of a man. Uh, and he would crush, this one would crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent, of course, who is Satan, would crush the heel of the woman's seed. Now, which would you rather have crushed if you had a choice, your head or your heel? How many would choose the head? You would? You'd rather have your head crushed than your heel. No, wrong choice. <laughs> I'd rather have my heel crushed than my head because one is a fatal blow and the other is temporary. The two figures in this battle are Christ, who was born of, the, of a woman, it tells us in Galatians 4.4, 4, and Satan, that old serpent. Now, this coming vanquisher, this redeemer, is referred to later in Scripture. You know, Scripture is progressive. You have to keep reading it to find out more and more. So later on in Scripture, he is, he is identified as the Messiah. That's what the Jews called him, the Messiah. And it means the anointed one, the Christ. The Proto-Evangelium gives us really what we could call a succinct sketch of God's twofold program on earth. The bruising by the Messiah of Satan's head was the declaration that this Christ, this anointed one, would destroy Satan with a fatal blow to his head. Fatal blow. His death, the Lord's death on the cross, which satisfied God for the atonement of all sin. It was the propitiation, the satisfaction for God for the atonement of the sins of the whole world. That was the blow that eventually will destroy Satan. His final judgment, you know, he's, he's been judged, but he's waiting, awaiting his sentence right now. But his final in, uh, judgment will also, besides being thrown into the lake of fire, will include the destruction of his usurped, counterfeit kingdom of darkness. And when will that take place? When will Satan finally be cast into the lake of fire and all his demonic followers with him and his kingdom will be utterly done away with? It's actually not until after the millennium because during the millennium he is thrown into the bottomless pit but then after the thousand years he is loosed. And God has a purpose in that. We'll talk about that one day but um, he's showing man that it's sin. Not, it's not even the environment, because the environment and planet Earth for a thousand years will be perfect because Christ will be reigning. So there will still be, when Satan is loosed, he'll still find people who will rebel with him against God's kingdom and God's anointed one. But after that, Christ will cast him into the lake of fire, and he, we will go into the eternal state. And that will be the completement. That is what is known, you know, the forever putting down of all rebellion will be... Um, the completion of God's kingdom program. Then there will only be one kingdom, and it will be the eternal kingdom of God, of truth and righteousness and peace and everything wonderful that goes with that. Well, the second bruising of the Genesis 3.15 prophecy was that of Satan's heel-crushing blow on the Christ. And this also took place where? 
on the cross when all the demonic forces, both human and spirit, were engaged in a full assault on him. The heel crushing was actually a prophecy of the temporary nature of Christ's death, which stands, you know, because you get a heel crushed, a heel will heal, won't it? <laughs> I had to say that. Um, so it was foreshadowing that it was just going to be temporary. His death was only temporary because on the third day, what did he do? He rose from the dead. Um, so this stands in stark contrast to the fatal head crushing of the serpent. Christ's death on the cross would become the foundation, therefore, for God's whole redemptive program. You see the big cross right there for his redemptive program and his kingdom program. It's the, it's the source of everything. His redemptive program also has a twofold purpose. One is to reclaim his usurped kingdom, and the second one was to provide eternal redemption for fallen man. Now, to inaugurate his kingdom, his redemptive and his kingdom programs, both of them, God chose two men. In about 2000 BC, 2000 years before Christ, God chose the first man. He was a man who came, actually a Gentile, he came from an idol-worshipping family. He came out of Ur of the Chaldees, and his name was Abraham. With him, the Lord God made a covenant, a promise, a covenant promise, which is known as the Abrahamic covenant. He would bless all nations through the seed of Abraham. Genesis 12 verses 1 to 3. And that seed was Christ. We are told in Galatians 3.18. In other words, this promised seed of the woman would come through Abraham. And his righteous seed by way of his wife Sarah, not the seed produced in the flesh with his, his you know, handmaiden, Hagar. That was man's doing, and we have been suffering the consequences of that ever since. You know, the sons of flesh. You see the difference between them and the sons of the spirit, the descendants of um, Abraham who have been grafted. And I'm talking about true believers. So he said that um, he would bless Abraham. He would bless all the nations of the world through Abraham's seed. That seed was Christ who would fulfill God's redemptive program for all men and women who would come to him by faith. And to inaugurate, so to inaugurate his redemptive program, he chose Abraham, Abrahamic covenant. Then to inaugurate his kingdom program, about a thousand years later, he chose David, who was from the lineage of Abraham, and he made a covenant covenant promise with David which is known as the Davidic covenant and that promise all these were sealed by blood by the way that covenant promise promised David a kingdom and a royal seed forever 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 to 16 contains the Davidic covenant now here too, in saying that he would have a seed that would reign on his throne forever, he was speaking of Christ who would rule one day over the house of Israel forever. Eternal king, king of kings. Not only would he rule over the house of Israel, but his, the extension of his rule would be over the whole world. Daniel tells us this when that stone cut out without hands comes down from heaven and fills the whole earth. 
His, you know, his kingdom will be fill the whole earth in the millennial kingdom. He would fulfill God's kingdom program on earth by destroying all God's enemies, human and demonic, and he will rule the world in righteousness. Now, to impress his point with both Abraham and David, God gave them each a son who pictured or typified the promised seed, the Messiah. To Abraham, he gave Isaac. Now, Isaac was miraculously conceived, wasn't he? Now, he did come from man and a woman, but the woman's womb had been barren all of her childbearing days, and she was postmenopausal. And we would all admit that that's a miracle, right? To conceive a child when you're 90 years old. Um, and so, and also, so he, he pictures the promised Messiah in his birth, and later on, it was asked of Abraham to offer his only begotten, beloved son, Isaac, as a sacrifice. Now, God was never going to allow him to actually kill Isaac. He does not approve of us killing our children. It was a test to see if Abraham was willing to do so, and it was also a test for Isaac, because Isaac was probably about 33 years of age. He was stronger than his old dad. His dad was pretty feeble. He did not have to get up on that altar and lay himself willingly on the wood, but he did. He was willing to obey God's will just as his father. Where was that sacrifice made? It wasn't made, but where was it going to be made? On Mount Moriah. Why? Because Abraham's dearly beloved son was to picture the Messiah's redemptive work, which would be accomplished. It would be accomplished. It wouldn't be stopped when the knife is in the air or when they're about to hammer the nails into his arms and feet. There would be no substitute ram for the true Messiah because he would be the lamb. God himself will provide a lamb for the sacrifice. And where was that sacrifice made? On Mount Moriah, same place. Well, in similar fashion, God gave David a son of promise named Shalom. What does Shalom mean? Peace. Solomon's name meant peace. He gave David a son of promise named Peace, to whom he promised a kingdom of universal peace and tremendous glory. You know how very appropriate it is that the very first sentence in the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, opens with an introduction to Jesus as the son of David and the son of Abraham. Christ was born, you see, to fulfill both the redemptive and the kingdom programs of God. And by the way, those two programs of God are also portrayed for us in the Old Testament by, and the New Testament by way of two animals, the lamb and the lion. The lamb speaks of Christ's redemptive program, correct? Sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb. The lion speaks of God's kingdom program because when he comes back the second time, it will be a, a lion to establish his kingdom. 
And that is what God is doing on earth. And his prophetic word is the account of how the Lord Jesus Christ is carrying it all out. It is really the true story of paradise lost and regained. At the Lord's first coming, he enacted his redemptive program. He was the lamb. At his second coming, he's going to complete his kingdom program. He will never return to this earth as a lamb again. He's going to come back as a lion from the tribe of Judah. Well, as time progressed, God revealed the line of descent for this promised seed of the woman, the Messiah. As mentioned, he would come through Abraham's son, not Ishmael, son of the flesh, but Isaac. And then through Isaac's son, Jacob. And over and over again, the Old Testament, God always showed that the Messiah would come through the secondborn, the secondborn son. You know, there was Cain and Abel. Abel was the one that the Messiah would come through. He had to be replaced with Seth. But it was always the secondborn. Why? Because our first birth is our birth of flesh. That isn't going to get us anywhere. It's when we are born again. The second birth is what is so important. So it would be through Isaac's son Jacob, and then Jacob's 12 sons, uh, from them was born the people called the Israelites, with whom God made the special Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. The Messiah would come from them, and those were both unconditional promises, unconditional. He would make of them a great nation. He had to. He had to keep them preserved. He couldn't let them just assimilate into the world because he had to keep them as a people so that who could come through them? The Messiah. And um, then their obligation, they did have obligation, their obligation, this is an unconditional covenant, was the Mosaic covenant. They had obligation from the Mosaic covenant you know, given by way of God, uh, Moses' law, that they were to forsake all other gods. They were to have no other gods before them but God. They were to obey the laws that God gave them through Moses so that they would receive blessing. That's simple. You know, don't put any other gods before you. Obey me, and you'll be blessed. If you don't, guess what? You'll be cursed. They say that Abraham, well, this is true. Abraham was the father of the Hebrew race. Moses was the father of the Israelite nation. The Abrahamic, the Adamic, the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants, the Palestinian covenant, those are all unconditional. God will fulfill them no matter what Israel does, no matter what man does. Um, but their part was they had to, to um, obey him. When the Israelites came out of, finally, after 400 years spent in Egypt, when they came out of Egypt, where most of those years they spent as slaves, and then after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, why did they have to wander for 40 years? Because they just couldn't obey, could they? They just couldn't get that right. Man still has trouble doing that. It's so simple. Just obey. Trust and obey, but, you know, just can't. Uh, so they had to wander for 40 years. But finally, they entered into the promised land that their forefather, Abraham, had been promised by God. And when they did, they were rather poor and primitive in their lifestyle. Imagine, you know, 40 years in the desert. And they had been slaves before that for centuries. So they were pretty primitive. Um... And they had judges over them. They did not have kings like the, all their other neighbors around them. The Gentiles had kings. 
They had judges. Why? Because God alone was to serve as their sovereign, their king. They were to trust in him as their king. He would take care of them. They had no standing army either because God was sufficient to win their battles if they would just trust in him. The problem was that their natural tendency was not to trust in his sufficiency. They looked around, they said, well, they have a king. They have a king. We want a king too. You know, so the first one they selected was a bad one, uh, Saul. But they, ju they just would not trust in God's sovereign sufficiency. They, and their faith, faith repeatedly faltered. They disobeyed his commandments, and they far too often turned to idols. So, you know, their whole, the whole book of Judges is like this, a roller coaster. They'd get a good judge, and they'd listen to him for a while, and then, then they'd fall back into paganism and disobedience. And However, no matter how double-minded, and it's not just the Jews, any one of us would have been the same way. The Gentiles were even worse out there. They were just totally without direction. But no matter how double-minded and how disobedient the Israelites were, God preserved them, right? He had to preserve them because he had made certain unconditional promises, the most important being the coming of the Savior through Abraham's seed. Well, by 1000 B.C., during the reigns of David and Solomon, Israel became a great nation with a sphere of influence that really extended from Egypt to um, Babylon. Very, very um, great time for Israel. It looked to be a time in which maybe, finally, the Messiah would emerge and usher in a kingdom of everlasting righteousness. Satan had been making innumerable attempts to destroy the people of God so that the Messiah could not come through them. You know, that's what the whole Old Testament is about. The adversary trying to attack the line of, of um, Abraham. You know, he began with Cain killing Abel, didn't he? And all the way through, it down, at one point in time, it was down to one little boy. Was the only one to preserve the whole lineage of the Messiah so that he could come as the way that God promised. So Satan was always doing his best to, to kill off the Jews and the Israelites and distract them and turn them to idols. And God was always preserving them. That's what the whole Old Testament is about. But here with the kingdom of Solomon, especially, it looked to be like Satan was finally on the verge of defeat. The temple that was built by Solomon was magnificent. And Solomon, Solomon himself was perhaps the most powerful man in the entire Middle East. Remember when the Queen of Sheba came to see him? And she said, the half hasn't even been told to me. She was so impressed. Well, so everything was looking pretty hunky-dory. But it was then that things took a surprising turn because Solomon disobeyed God. And the worst thing he did was taking for himself many foreign wives who brought their false gods with them into Israel and into the palace and even into the temple. So sad how a wise man corrupted his wisdom and the nation lapsed into idolatry, and the Messiah did not come. By and large, the people forgot God and tribal jealousies. Remember, they consist of these tribes, 12 tribes, actually technically 13. But they, jealousies began to divide the nation into two weak sections. Ten of the tribes to the north became known as Israel. You know, there was a civil war. A northern kingdom called Israel, and two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, to the south, the southern kingdom, Judah. It, 
And by the way, there were the godly of the ten tribes that trickled down to worship in the true place in Jerusalem. So there, the ten tribes were not lost. There were representatives of all 12 tribes down the south. But it didn't take very long for the wealth and the influence to wane that had been, you know, under David and Solomon. As evil king after evil king reigned in both the northern and the southern kingdoms. So that by the 8th century B.C., 800 years before Christ, both Israel and Judah, northern and southern kingdom, were geographically small buffer kingdoms, very small. Israel today is only like the size of New Jersey. These are just small little buffer nations that were located smack dab in the middle of three powerful nations that were beating their war drums to gain supremacy in the Middle East. Nothing new under the sun, is there? <laughs> Same ones still beating their war drums today. They were Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon which is Iraq today. In 721 BC, the religious and political decay of the northern kingdom was to the point of no return. Did you know that the northern king never had one good king to reign over them? Not one of something like 19 kings. Not one who did right in the sight of God. So God sent the Assyrians, wicked, horrible, awful Assyrians, just like the ISIS guys today, cruel, barbaric, torturous, killed, didn't care who they killed, who they chopped heads off, raped, I mean, just awful. God used them in judgment. And those Jews who were not killed were taken captive to other nations where, with the passing of time, very few retained their identity as Jews. And Satan must have felt exuberant in having succeeded in eliminating half of God's people. Because of a few good kings, just a few, and with God's help, the southern kingdom of Judah managed to survive another century, about another hundred years. However, more and more of the warnings of God's prophets, such as Isaiah and Micah and Nahum, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, and Habakkuk, their warnings to stay away from idols, were being ignored and scorned by the people. You would think they would learn from what happened to the northern kingdom, wouldn't you? But why is it that man never learns from history? Just doesn't. Did you know that, of, and I'm going to answer one of your homework questions, so listen up. Of the last nine kings of Israel, the last nine, seven of them did evil in the sight of God. And they were Ahaz, Manasseh, Ammon, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. That's not your question. Your question were, is, who were the only two good kings of the last nine in Judah? And they were Hezekiah and Josiah. See? How easy homework? I just gave you an answer. Hezekiah and Josiah. Well, the last great, now let's go back to the Assyrian Empire, right? The last great Assyrian king was King Ashurbanipal. You don't have to know that's not important for you, but that was his name, Ashurbanipal. Now his son, after Ashurbanipal died, his son was not able to hold that empire together as the father had done. So around 625 BC, the once great Assyrian empire began to crumble and weaken, as does 
you know, that's how all empires eventually go. United States of America is weakening and crumbling today, and we've only lasted 200 years. It is so sad. Well, so it started to crumble. Uh, and a certain young vice regent over in Babylon who ruled that part of the Assyrian Empire for King Ashurbanipal, when he saw that Ashurbanipal's son was not very strong, he attempted a revolution against him. And he actually had the king, the young king, assassinated. I would never have wanted to be a king. I have no desire to be a king or a queen because of, but it was always being assassinated, weren't they? And when the king was assassinated, a lot of times the queen was assassinated with them. It just, mm, they didn't really last very long unless they were really nasty. So he had this king's son, Ashurbanipal's son, assassinated. And um, this vice regent of Babylon, his name was Nabopolassar. He took his Babylonian army, which had been part of the Assyrian army, he took these Chaldeans, and with the help of the Medes, he destroyed the capital of Assyria, Nineveh. He destroyed it in 612 B.C. Who had preached to Nineveh and didn't want to? Trivia question, Jonah. So it was at this time that Pharaoh Necho, his name was Pharaoh Necho, <laughs> down in Egypt. Okay, he's down there in Egypt, and he's seeing this new guy from Babylon come over and war with the Assyrians, and he's getting kind of panicky, so he decides that he's going to march up and help the Assyrians to fight off the Babylonians. But to get up to Assyria, he had to pass through the land of Judah, you know, right there in the way. And so he, um, he's, he's passing through Judah, and, and Josiah, the king of Judah, he's the good king. Remember him? One of the good kings. He's the one that brought all the spiritual reform to Israel, uh, to Judah, the southern kingdom. Well, he hears that Pharaoh Necho is passing through his land. And so he assembles an army and goes out to meet him. That was a mistake. He should not have because Pharaoh Necho sent him many messages saying, King Josiah, I have no problem with you. Stay home. I just want to walk through your land. You know, I just want to pass through your land and go and try to help the Assyrians. But Josiah got involved, and they met at Megiddo, and King Josiah was killed in the battle. It was a very sad day for Judah because he had been a very good king who had brought those great revivals to the land. It was sad because with his death also came the death of all of his spiritual reforms, and from there on, Judah was on a downward path you know, to judgment because there was never a good king after him. The people of Judah then raised to the throne in his place his youngest son, whose name was Jehoahaz. He was 23 years old. It's always dangerous to put a young man full of testosterone on a throne, you know? 23 years old, and scripture says, how would you like this for an epitaph? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did. He ignored his father's righteousness. Isn't that sad? For such a godly father to have a son like this. And the next one is also his son. Same thing. 
Rather than following the godly example of his father, Josiah, he chose to ignore the Lord, and he chose to live his life as he wished. I mean, after all, he was a king now, and so he chose to live his life with, for his pleasure, with whatever pleased him. Now, politically, the leaders of Judah who had put Jehoahaz on the throne were against the Egyptians. They were anti-Egyptian, and they were pro-Babylonian. Well, that made sense because it was the Egyptians who had killed their good king. Even though Pharaoh Necho really didn't want to, it was them who killed him. So with only three months of the young king's crowning ceremony, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, because he saw they were anti-Egyptian, he removed Jehoahaz from the throne and took him captive to Egypt. This is when he came back down after he helped the Assyrians. He came back down through Judah, and he took that young king with him as a captive, and in his place, he put his older brother on the throne of Judah and told him, you know, you serve me, you collect taxes for me. And that older brother, sadly, was only two years older. He was 25. His name was Eliakim. And I don't know why, but Pharaoh Necho changed his name to Jehoiakim. Big difference, you know, <laughs> from Eliakim to Jehoiakim. So with the removal of their king, of Israel's king, actually Judah's king, by a Gentile ruler, really the judgment pronounced on Judah was beginning. They had no more say in who was the king on their throne. And like his younger brother, Jehoiakim also sowed evil in the sight of the Lord. In fact, he committed so much evil that Jeremiah, who tried to get his attention, but he wouldn't listen. He listened to his young counselors instead of the prophet of God. Jeremiah says he's one of the worst kings to ever reign in Judah. His wicked ways helped to further corrupt the land because here is a sad truth. The leaders of a land have great influence on the character of a land. And that's why we know we're in trouble. Because Washington, our Supreme Court, we're, we're loaded with leaders who do not know the Lord and are not out to serve him and seeking his will. We need to go to the polls and we need to elect. You know, I don't really care much about who's running other than they love the Lord, their God, with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because it doesn't matter what else. If they will just seek the Lord, he will be the king and he will protect us and get things right. So we need to vote for Christians, those we know are truly Christians. Well, Jehoiakim even dared, this is how bad this guy was, he even dared to cut in pieces and burn the word of God. He didn't like to listen to Jeremiah. And one day, um, somebody brought one of Jeremiah's scrolls into his presence and read it, and it was talking about how he should submit himself to what God was doing, that God was chastising them, that actually he should turn to the Lord. And um, anyway, he didn't like it, and so he tore it up and then threw it in the fire, and it burned. But here's what that evil king learned eventually. But when he learned it, it was too late for him. He eventually learned that people can tear up God's prophetic word all day long. They can, refuse, they can stop up their ears to it. They can say, I don't care about prophecy. I don't care what it says. I don't care about God's word. They can even try to destroy God's word by putting it to ashes, but that's not, in the long run, going to make one bit of difference. Not one bit of difference because his word will endure man's attempts to destroy it. No matter what they redefine, marriage as, or whatever, his word is going to stand. 
and it will be fulfilled regardless of the ways men and rulers invent to stop up their ears to it. The Lord rewrote the words that he had given to Jeremiah. That's all he had to do. He just told them again to Jeremiah. He wrote them on another scroll. But Judah's days were numbered, and so were Jehoiakim's. By 607 B.C., the young Babylonian crown prince Nebuchadnezzar had begun to dislodge the Egyptians and Syria. Nabopolassar, his father, lay sick in Babylon when his son led a surprise attack against Pharaoh Necho at Carchemish, which was on the Euphrates. He defeated the Egyptians there. He pursued them through Syria and Phoenicia. And then when he got to Judah, he stopped at Jerusalem and besieged it. It was 605 B.C. And after just a short siege, Jehoiakim surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar and Judah became a vassal state now, not to the Egyptians, but now she was a vassal state to the Babylonians. Jehoiakim was left on the throne by Nebuchadnezzar. He made an agreement. He said, I'll keep you on the throne if you collect taxes and um, send them to me and just be a vassal state and, you know, obey me. And it was then at that point that Nebuchadnezzar heard that his father Nabopolassar had died in Babylon. So he hurried to leave to go back to Babylon so he could be crowned the next king of Babylon. And when he left, he took what he robbed the temple of God, Solomon's temple, of much of its vessels and furniture, its valuables. Why did he do that? Well, spoils of warfare, but it was also so he could take those vessels and put them in his God's temple. His God, his number one God, was Marduk. Over in Babylon, he put those vessels there to show everybody that my God is superior to the God of the Israelites. And he also took with him some of the principal Hebrew nobles, sons of royalty. He took them as hostages, hoping that because he took the cream of the crop, the nobles' sons, included among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, that they would obey, you know, that they would be subservient, that they would not rebel because they had their sons, so they could kill them. That didn't work out because Jehoiakim, after time, did decide to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar and not collect the taxes for him. So guess what Nebuchadnezzar did? I'm running out of time here. Nebuchadnezzar was angry when he heard this. So he marched. Actually, Jehoiakim decided to fight um, Nebuchadnezzar, and he asked Egypt to help him. And when Nebuchadnezzar heard about that, you know, he goes, oh, no. So he had to make that long march back to Jerusalem, and he besieged the, the city once again. And um, after the siege, uh, he learned that Jehoiakim had been killed. They think that Nebuchadnezzar was behind that, that he sent raiders into the city and they killed the king. But the king, as Jeremiah had said, was given a dishonorable burial. He was, he was thrown, his body was thrown over the wall of Jerusalem like an ass, it says, like a donkey, just to die out there and have the vultures do away with him. And it says that not one person in the city lamented his death. See what happens if you destroy the word of God? Mm. Well, he was, uh, his, he was replaced by his 18-year-old son. That tells you something right there, doesn't it? And uh, he also followed in the wicked footsteps of his father and his uncle Jehoahaz, rather than in the righteous ways of his godly grandfather, J Josiah. 
And so he saw, I mean, he's only 18 years old. He sees his city is besieged by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army, and so he caves pretty quickly, and he surrenders. His reign only lasted three years and ten days. And as the Lord had predicted all along, the palace and the temple were raided. The city was stripped of all its wealth, and Jehoiakim, his wives, his mother, his entire household, and some some 10,000 Jews were carried in the second exile to Babylon. The year was 597. That means Daniel has been in Babylon for how many years now? About eight or nine years. So now he's a somebody. He's got some influence. So God takes the second exile, more than 10,000 people, and included in that exile was a priest named Ezekiel. All right, then the last king of Judah was not a son of Jehoiachin because Jehoiachin has another name, which was Jeconiah. There was a curse put on him. You remember the Jeconiah curse? That no seed of his would ever reign as king of Israel. Only Christ circumvents that, that curse because he was of this, not of the seed of Joseph who inherited the royal throne line through Jeconiah. He did inherit the throne line, but he was not of the seed of Joseph. But he was a bloodline descendant of David through his mother Mary, who was a descendant of David's other son, another son, Nathan. Anyway, it's just amazing that he is the only one who can ever be king, is the Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and King of Israel. So the last son was not a, I mean, king was not a son of Jehoiakim because of this curse. It was actually Jehoiachin's, chin, Jehoiachin's uncle. His name was Zedekiah, and he was 21 years old. Nebuchadnezzar installed him as a puppet king of Judah. Now Jeremiah was his counselor, and over and over again, he tried to warn Zedekiah, this is God's judgment, just wait it out. God's already told me the captivity is going to be for 70 years. Just submit to Nebuchadnezzar, and you'll spare yourself, you'll spare your family, you'll spare all the citizens, the leftover citizens of Jerusalem. So just, you know, submit. This is our judgment for having, and also, by the way, turn to God. But Zedekiah, again, did not follow the wise counsel of um, Jeremiah. In fact, he listened to his, his young friends, and they said that Jeremiah, in saying that, was anti, uh, you know, he was not loyal. And so they threw him in prison. They threw Jeremiah in prison. And at one time, they even threw him in a pit where he almost drowned in the mud, Poor Jeremiah. No wonder he was a weeping prophet. Nobody ever listened to him. Uh, <laughs> well, there was a 30-month siege this time. This is the third time that Nebuchadnezzar has gone over to Jerusalem. And that 30 months, that's almost three years. They surrounded Jerusalem. And can you imagine those poor people in that city? They can't get out. The, every imaginable woe you can picture happened. Young children, I mean, people starving to death. They were throwing the bodies over the wall, you know, and every disease, and it was just awful. But Zedekiah would not surrender. And then finally, being a chicken, he tried to escape. When Nebuchadnezzar finally succeeded in capturing the city, he tried to escape with his, with his family, but he was captured. And the last thing he ever saw was his own sons being killed before his eyes and all the sons of the nobles that were left, and his whole household. Because after they killed all them right in front of him, they put out his eyes. Nebuchadnezzar put out his eyes, burnt, you know, completely 
enshrined him in chains and carried him off to Babylon. And then they raised Jerusalem to the ground. Solomon's temple was completely robbed and it was burned. The high priest and many other priests and officials were put to death and only a small number of poor farmers and vine dressers were permitted to stay in the land. That was the third exile. What happened to Jeremiah? Well, he stayed around. He did not want to leave. They did not take him. Nebuchadnezzar, you won't believe this, but King Nebuchadnezzar offered Jeremiah to come with them to Babylon, but not as a captive, as an honored guest. Now, why do you think that was? Who had the king's ear by now? Daniel, and he was telling Nebuchadnezzar, whatever you do, you treat Jeremiah. He's speaking the truth for my God. And Jeremiah refused that. He said he wanted to remain in the Holy Land. Nebuchadnezzar put one of Jeremiah's friends as governor over Jerusalem. His name was Gedaliah. He was a good man, but he didn't last very long because one of the descendants of Zedekiah named Ishmael assassinated Gedaliah. And then it is said that the people took Jeremiah by force into Egypt. He did not want to go. He was dragging his heels. He didn't want to go to Egypt. He wanted to stay in Jerusalem. He knew he wouldn't be alive, but he knew the captivity was only going to be for 70 years and the people would be back. And so he wanted to stay there, but against his will, he was taken to Egypt. Now, we do not know if he died in Egypt or if some say that he eventually made his way with his secretary, Baruch, to Babylon to where he died with his people in, in Babylon. I don't know. But Jerusalem's fall was set in place. The, the Lord had warned for centuries that the day of judgment was coming, but the people paid little heed to the warnings, just like today. People are paying no attention to the proclaimers of the end times and what's ahead and what's coming. Nobody's listening. The scripture spells out clearly, clearly the reason for the Babylonian captivity. They had become increasingly unfaithful to him, committing one atrocious sin after another. They worshipped false gods. They adopted unrighteous lifestyles of the immoral. They even defiled the temple of God by bringing um, false worship right into the sanctuary. They rejected God's compassion as he sent them messenger after messenger to warn them. He longed to save them and he showed them repeated mercy. He didn't instantly reject them or execute them all on the spot. But they rejected his many appeals and warnings and tried his patience continually. And it says in 2 Chronicles 36 that they sinned so much that finally there was no other remedy. No other remedy. They had sinned beyond the point of repentance. And so to be true to his word, he used Nebuchadnezzar as his tool for judgment. That's what it tells us in Daniel 1-2. It was the Lord who sent Nebuchadnezzar. Um, he would teach his people. Now remember, unconditional promises. He's, they're not going to be annihilated. They're not going to disappear as a people. But he is going to teach them some valuable lessons while they're there in Babylon. The main one was that they would learn to keep themselves from idols. He says to his people, 
you like idols so much, I'm going to send you to the capital of idol worship, <laughs> Babylon. And they had idols up to here, and they got so sick of idols that they never again had that problem. You see, it was all a necessary step in God's keeping and purifying the people who were to bring forth the promised seed of the woman who would fulfill both his redemptive and his kingdom programs. Amen? Are your heads dizzy? <laughs> Mine is. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your holy word. There were things I didn't even have time to talk about, like the fact that the 70 years of captivity was because your people didn't honor the Shemitah, the, uh, the seven-year sabbatic rest for 490 years, and therefore they didn't give the rest of the, the, to the land for 70 years. So they had to be removed from the land so it could get the rest that you wanted it to get. They didn't trust in you that you would provide for them during that seventh year. Oh, there's so much in your word, and it's so true, and it's so marvelous, and it's just one complete whole from beginning to end, and you had a plan, you have a purpose, and you're going to complete it, and we can trust you, and we know why we're here and where we're going, and it's just so wonderful to be part of the kingdom of God, the family of God, and Lord, I would pray with all my heart, if there is one here among us who does not know for sure that she has entered into your kingdom from the kingdom of darkness, I pray she would Invite Jesus Christ to be her Lord and Savior, for he is the promised redeemer, the Christ, the anointed one, the promised seed of the woman, and he alone can redeem her soul for all of eternity. Lord, we pray that so much. Now, just be with every woman, help her to be light and salt to this very dark world this coming week and bring us all back together next week, for we do pray, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen. God bless you.